Joyful greetings. Thank you. Um, this is possibly my last message here uh, before I, me and Katie move to Colorado. I know it's sad. It's okay. Unless Wilson like forces me to preach three more times. Anyways, um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. Uh, I, as you're flipping there, I want to put the question, their discussion question for the week on the screen so you guys can start reading it and multitasking as you flip. You can think about how you're going to answer. Uh, but the question is, who are your role models and what have you imitated and learned from them? All right. Who are your role models and what have you imitated and learned from them? If you don't know what a role model is, I gave you the definition. It's an example to be imitated. Okay? So after you've turned to Romans chapter 15, verse 113, we like to encourage people not just to come to church and be entertained by a great sermon and great worship, but for you guys to talk to each other, get to know people, interact. I know, right? Uh, so pair up, talk to someone you don't know, uh, if you can, and talk about the question. Who are your role models? Go. All right, sounds like you guys are done. If you didn't get, if you didn't get to share or you want to talk more about it, I encourage you guys, you could ask other people about their role models afterwards. It's a fun icebreaker question. But uh, I think it's appropriate to ask this question, especially because it's Father's Day, right? Maybe lots of our role models are our fathers. Um, happy Father's Day, by the way. I think this is my, uh, I think this is my second time uh, teaching on Father's Day, and I think the dramatic irony is that uh, for most, for all of my life, I grew up without my father in my life. Uh, but I found myself not lacking in. Uh, role models, male role models. I was very blessed that God provided men of God in my life at different times in my life to help me be the man of God that I am today, right? These men of God, these role models of mine, uh, I like to be dramatic, so I call them my mentors in life, right? And I have three of them, three stick out. And so my first mentor in life, he's the one that taught me a, a lot of life's basics and beyond, He's the one that taught me how to ride a bike, how to drive a car, how to get over my fear of heights. He taught me how to wrestle, how to treat women well, how to read my Bible, how to preach, how to be a man of God. He's the closest thing to a father figure that I've ever had. My second mentor, he's less like a father figure and more like that crazy uncle that everyone warns you about, but you just really love. Uh, those that have met up with me one-on-one know that I just love asking questions, and he's the reason why. He's the one that taught me the art of asking questions. Uh, I both loved and feared his questions. He had like this, uh, and he, he taught me how to care for people, how to minister, how to pursue people, how to be intentional with people's souls. I remember every Friday night and every Sunday when we had a newcomer in our church, he would always make sure that they heard the gospel before they left. Often he'd get people in rooms one-on-one or in his, whenever he had you in his car, and he was, his superpower was being able to make you cry, right, out of conviction. Uh, he'll ask questions like, 
if you were to, if you were to get in a car accident right now, where would you go, right? And just people would cry after talking to him. Yes. Uh, my third mentor, uh, he was like the older brother that I've always wanted. He, not only were we part of the same church, but we, were, we also lived together for a season, and we were, were workmates. We are both fellow teachers. And what I love about him is that he taught me how to be slow to speak. He, always, he, he helped me learn how to listen to people. Not just hear people and wait for my turn to talk, but to really listen to them. And so I know that these three mentors in my life, these three men, are part of the reason why I'm the man of God that I am today. And I know our church, we're coming up with a mentorship program, and I'm really excited that I'm really praying for that because I believe great things can happen when the older generation, right, the ones that have sinned a lot more and have seen a lot more of God's grace, share their wisdom to the younger generation, right? Not because they're perfect and awesome, but because they've seen more of God's grace. There is power in good role models, but there's also power in bad role models. This year at my school, we had a bullying program. I mean, bullying problem, not program, problem. Uh, the bully, there was a bully in my school, and I don't want to keep on calling him bully, so, and I don't want to use his real name, so what name should, I, should we give him? For the re- I can't use Patrick, that's too confusing. Chad? I heard Chad. Chad Steve. All right, we'll call him Chad Steve. So Chad Steve's bullying, uh, first he would just bully people on his own, but it evolved throughout the year. As time went on, he started like recruiting people into his bullying gang, like a mob boss. Like, like a program, yeah. So it is a program. He would go up to students and say something along the lines of, look, if you don't want me to bully you, join me and bully this kid for me. And it worked. <laughs> this 13-year-old punk got an, got, gathered a gang of seventh graders under his control, and they started doing his dirty work. Right? Th- this kid, he isolated other boys and picked on them, calling them names and just heart, like just bagging on their insecurities. He made girls cry by talking about their appearances, calling them ugly and flat-chested. He would often blurt out in the middle of class inappropriate remarks, often which, which, often which were either racist or really crude, right? And what I began to see is how his influence, his example, his role modelship was very infectious and toxic. I began to see how some of the nicest kids, the nicest boys in my class started imitating him, starting becoming like him. It started off when first they would laugh at his jokes, right? Every time he said something inappropriate or any time he said something to a girl or another student, they would laugh. And then they would start copying his jokes. They would start repeating it for themselves, even when he wasn't around, to a point where they started making their own inappropriate jokes. They started saying things that I knew they would never say bef- they've never said before. 
This is the power of role models. The influences that we let, that we choose to follow, the examples that we choose to follow, they influence us greatly. They shape us greatly. And in Romans 15, Paul, what he does is he shows us our greatest example, how our greatest example, our greatest role model ought to be Christ. To recap, in Romans 15, Paul, he, he continues unpacking what godly living look, looks like as he finishes up his letter to the Church of Rome. In, we need to remember that in chapters 1 to 11, he's been teaching us the foundations of our faith, the gospel, what we ought to believe, that we're sinful, Christ died for us, we're made right in, with God, not through our own works, but through faith in him, and thus we are a new creation. Thus, we're children of God. And in chapters 12 and onward, what Paul, Paul builds off of the foundation that he set, off of these 11 chapters that he's dedicated, and he gives this clear and practical guidelines of how we ought to live in light of the gospel. It's gospel-centered living. And it's important that we keep the order right. God loves, therefore, we live in a certain way. Not, we live in a certain way, therefore, God loves us. We see it, right? This is how, Paul was intentional in how he structured Romans and in all the pages and all the words he dedicated, first unpacking God loves us and then showing us in light of that, how we to live. What we believe shapes how we behave. The Christian life, it's a life of applied theology. It's all of Romans coming together. It affects how we choose to live each day, God and the gospel impacting every aspect of our lives. And so, in chapter 12, what Paul shows us is that we ought to, our lives ought to be living sacrifices to Christ. In chapter 13, we ought to honor the government. We ought to submit to the authorities that God has placed in front of us, under, uh, above us. And then in chapters 12 to 15, he repeats this command, to love your neighbor. He repeats this over and over again in three chapters. And Paul, he, he's starting to sound like, he, perhaps he's starting to sound like a broken record, right? Just saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. But his repetition, it serves to show as an emphasis of how important this matter is. Perhaps you're sick of hearing this, but you got to hear this because it's so important. We look at verse 1, and Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We who are strong. Who is that? It's, it's, the, it's the mature Christian. It's the Christian that understands the gospel, that understands Romans 1 to chapter 1 to chapter 11. It's not the, it's not, it's not the Christian that's perfect. It's not the Christian that, all, that has it all together, but it's the Christian that understands God and his grace. This is the strong one. And so if you understand the gospel, if you understand chapters 1 to 11, Paul's saying that we have this obligation 
this, that there's this need for us to care for the weak. In essence, what he's saying is that it's a command to love one another, especially those who are immature in the faith, those that still don't understand the full love of God. We need to show them God's love. Then in verse 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. He says, we need to please our neighbor. But wait, perhaps those of you that know your Bible well, really, really well can find a contradiction here with something that Paul says. Right? Paul, in Galatians chap- chapter 1, he says, if, we're still trying to please peop- if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So there's a contradiction. Is there a contradiction? In Romans 15, he says, please your neighbor. And then in, ch- in Galatians chapter 1, he says, look, if I'm pleasing people, I'm not a servant of Christ. So what is it, Paul? Do I please my neighbor? Do I please people? Or do I not please people? The answer is that there are two types of people pleasing. There's pleasing your neighbor for their good and for God's glory, and then there's pleasing your neighbor for your own good and for your own glory. One is done out of gospel love. The other is done out of selfish love. And throughout the past couple weeks, we've been addressing this. We've been coming to what this means. Wilson, he gives his famous cyanide example, right? That, the gos- that gospel love isn't afraid to call out evil. It isn't afraid to speak out truth, even if that means stepping on friends' toes. And this makes sense. Think about it. If I said that I'm afraid to tell my friend to stop drinking cyanide because I'm afraid it's going to ruin our friendship or that he's no longer going to be friends with me, what kind of love is that? What kind of people-pleasing is that? Isn't that selfish love? Because what do we value? We value the pleasure, we value the approval that we get from this friendship more than our friend's life. But gospel love puts their good above your own as it's willing to risk the friendship and say, look, I love you. And because I love you, I don't care if you're not going to speak to me anymore, but I need to tell you this truth. Stop drinking cyanide. It's going to kill you. It's going to ruin you. My disclaimer, how you do this is important, right? You can't just go around being all condescending, saying you're speaking truth and acting self-righteous. Otherwise, you'll be a Pharisee. But you got to be wise with your words, tactful, gentle, humble, empathetic, and patient, right? I give this disclaimer because I don't want you guys to go off and saying, Patrick says I can call you out on your sins, right, and start judging people. But the way we do it, right, ought to be in love. And I've been shown this type of love. Um, I remember when my best friend Tim, he called me out on my sins. He's actually here today. If he missed church, I would have talked about how I called him out on his sins, but um, led youth group. But he's here. Uh, Together, we led youth group and at our old church. I remember one night, uh, very early on, this was a couple years ago, 
but he called me out. He, he saw how my pride, right, my young, arrogant, foolish pride was getting in, my way, getting in the way of my leadership, was getting in, my, in the way of me being able to really serve people and love people well. And so he called me out on it. And he also called me out on how I would sometimes give BS answers, right, because, to people because I was afraid to say I didn't know because I didn't want to look inadequate. And at the time, if I'm honest, I hated Tim for doing that, right? Even though he did everything well, even though he spoke gently and he did everything right, I still hated him for it. As he was speaking to me, in my mind, I was just like, are you serious? Like, I, I just wanted to counterattack him by calling him out on all of his sins because he has a lot more than I do. <laughs> but looking back, right, looking back, I am so grateful to have a brother like Tim. I am so grateful that he loved me enough. He cared he was willing to risk offending me. He was willing to risk our friendship to tell me something that I needed to hear, to tell me truth that would ultimately help me, to tell me to, to stop drinking cyanide. He did it for my good, and we, too, need to love others like this. And I think another thing is we need to learn how to receive love like this. Because it's hard. Again, I told you, I hated Tim even though I was being called out. It's difficult. It's difficult to give and it's difficult to receive. Perhaps this is the reason why Paul repeats this message again and again in Romans. But Tim and even my mentors, as great as they are, as loving as they are, they're not the greatest example of how we ought to love. The ultimate example is in Jesus. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This says how Christ didn't, didn't please himself, but he took on our reproaches and our troubles. Christ is our greatest role model of love. It is, it's through his example that serves as this guide on how we ought to love one another. In the same way, I learned from my mentors, right? I, I think Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, look, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It all comes back to Christ. In verse 7, he says, welcome others as Christ welcomed us. So that begs the question, how exactly did Christ welcome us? He welcomes us with our many sins and imperfections. He welcomes us with all of our shortcomings and failures. He welcomes us with all our annoyances and messiness and uselessness. He, he isn't waiting for us to be some future, better version of ourselves in order to welcome us. But just as we are, as messy and imperfect as we are, he welcomes us with open hands. This is how we ought to welcome others. This is how we ought to love others. We're to do likewise. Christ 
shows that. He, he went so far to die for the, the, the messy people, for us. We're called to love as he loves. There is no excuse. He had every reason not to do all that he did, not to welcome us, and yet he did anyways. Look, I, 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 it's not even that I can guess this. I know this to be true, that there are some people in this church that you struggle loving with, right? Don't point them out. But maybe, it's, maybe you struggle loving them because they're not your type, uh, or because your personalities clash, or you have these differences. Maybe there's some drama that happened between you two, or some drama that happened to a friend that's close to you, and so you heard about them, and now you're like, oh, I can't talk to them anymore. Right? Whatever, I don't care. Christ gives us no excuse. The way he loves gives us no excuse to not love one another. That's the example he sets before us. And so some scholars, right, they believe that the church in Rome, they didn't listen. Despite how much Paul repeated it in his letter, they didn't listen to what Paul said. There's talk of how some people in the church turned other, you know, their, the people that they didn't love against, against uh, to the Roman Empire. Like imagine it. Imagine a brother in Christ in this church sending another brother in Christ to, to get eaten by lions in the Colosseum, or a sister in Christ sending another sister in Christ to get burned at the stake. I think the same kind of, a similar kind of destruction awaits us if we don't love with Christ's love, if we don't welcome each other as Christ welcomed us. Why do we love others? Yes, it's for the good of others. That's mentioned once in this passage. But Paul, he repeats a stronger reason for us in chapters, in verse 6 to 7. Well, let's see if you can hear it. That together you may with one voice glorify the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Did you guys hear it? The reason isn't just for the good of others, but it's for the glory of God. And then Paul, he hammers this in. He goes to show how Christ is this ultimate example in the rest of the passage. He models this. Jesus loves because of, because he wants, because of God's global glory. In verses 8 to 12, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even when he arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So 
why is it important that we follow Christ's example? That our main motivation is for God's glory. One, this is what we were made to do, right? This is what we were designed for. You and I were made to worship. And so when we bring God glory, it brings us true satisfaction. It's our purpose. It's our design. In the way birds ought to fly and fish ought to swim, we ought to glorify God. That's what we were made for. And so lots of us, we lack purpose and we feel unfulfilled because we're not doing this. But another reason that I believe we, our main motivation ought to be God's glory is because what else is it going to be? If our main motivation for loving people is people, what happens when people fail us? Because they will. They often do. People suck. Just be for honest. We're sinners. I'll fail you, right? Wilson will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. So definitely, your fellow church members will fail you. So what's going to happen to your love for them if your main motivation is people? Imagine this. Imagine one missionary. He goes to Laos because he loves the Lao people. But he gets, as he gets there, he gets there, he lives there. The Lao people, they treat him like crap. Eventually, after just being treated like crap for so long, he starts to hate the Lao people. He gets fed up with them. And so he bitterly gives up on his missionary work. And when asked why he, and so he goes home, and when asked why he returned from Laos, he says, I just no longer have a heart for the Lao people. Then imagine another missionary. He goes to Laos because he loves God's glory and he yearns, he desires to see the Lao people group worship and give God glory. And so he goes to Lao and the Lao people also treat him like crap. They are racist towards him. They charge him double for everything because he's a foreigner. He doesn't fit in. He isn't welcomed. No one is grateful for him being there. No one says, oh, thanks for being here and serving us and sacrificing your comforts. No one does that. And yet, he stays. And when asked, why do you stay despite all the crap that you put up with, despite all the things that the Lao people do, what does he say? He says, my work here is an offering to God. Does he love the Lao people? Yes and no, right? I'm sure he's just like the first example that loves them, but sometimes maybe comes to hate them, right? But it's his love for God. It's his desire to see God glorified that keeps him going and loving the Lao people. That's what anchors his love. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of church are we going to be? What's going to motivate our love? Is it going to be people? Or is it going to be God's glory? Finally, Christ is not only the pattern that we follow, but he's the power that enables us to follow. To love, we not only need his example as a guide, but we need his word and his spirit to fill us so that our love is an overflow of God's love to others. In verses 4 to 6, 
we see this. We see, for whatever, he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through in- the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus. And in verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. How often, how often have we said, I can't love this person. It's impossible. It's too hard. It's too difficult. I'm too frustrated by them. I'm too hurt by them, etc., etc. But whenever we say, I cannot, what we're really saying is that we will not. Because if God is calling us to do something in our lives, we can do it through him. If God never gives us impossible commands, he gives us the grace, the power, in order to fulfill those commands. To love others, I, I, I've learned it, it's, it's a gift and a fight, right? It's something that we have to fight for, it's something that we have to actually do, but it's something that's given to us by God. It, it's this kind of weird, heavy, true theology, though, right? Gift and fight, Everything in this so in this passage, everything written in God's word, its instruction, it's for us. It's for us. It it speaks through thousands of years, and it speaks to us. Endurance and encouragement, harmony and hope, unity with God Himself—all these things are given to us by God, so that we might overflow with his love and abound and show it to others. Whenever I find myself struggling to love someone, I ask myself, I ask myself, how am I trying to love this person? Am I trying to love them with my own love or God's love? Am I, am I trying to give them more of Patrick or am I giving them Christ? Often it's, I mean, all the time, actually, the reason why I struggle is because I'm trying to give them me. I'm trying to muster up love, but I fall short. My patience runs short. I need to, but when, when I understand God's love for me, my love abounds. My patience is stronger. You know, back to, um, I forgot his name. What did you call him? Chad, Chad Steve. Back to Chad Steve in my school. Uh, we were so close to expelling him. In fact, I think it would have been easier if we expelled him. Lots of the teachers struggled. I don't want to say hated him, but uh, one teacher compared him to an infamous, infamous uh, German leader. <laughs> but my principal, he's a man of patience, right? He's a man that follows God's example. He was working hard, talking to him and the parents, trying hard to figure out how can we make this work? How can we help him instead of just kicking him out and letting him be someone else's problem? Right? Again, that would have been easier. But he worked hard and he shared with me what was going on, right? And one day, 
I was having one of my famous hot shower dates with God. Perhaps you remember. I shared about that when we had the spiritual discipline series. Anyways, uh, so I was having my famous hot shower date with God, and as I was praying and just, you know, meditating on word, uh, I was convicted. The Holy Spirit convicted me to mentor this punk, right? And so I was like, oh, God, do I have to? And like, you should. I'm like, all right, I'll do it, right? Because if God calls me to do something, I want to do it. I got to do it. Got to trust in him. And so I got permission from my principal and from his parents to keep him in l- for lunch for two weeks straight, right? Uh, not out of a form of punishment, but as a form of discipline. The first one's then out of hate. The latter one's then out of love. And so for two weeks, we talked, right? And I, I wasn't paid for it. I volunteered to do this. And we took turns asking each other questions, getting to know each other. I gave him permission to say whatever he wanted to say. He could cuss in front of me. He could say all the inappropriate jokes he wants. And he could ask me anything he, he, he wants. And I promised he'd be honest, right? The, it's kind of this safe space uh, where we would learn how to mutually respect each other. At the end of two weeks, I asked him if he wanted to keep on meeting up once a week. And he agreed. He was actually enjoying our conversations. And I can't tell you the details of what we talked about because I promised him what stays between us, stays between us. But I can say in general, we talked about everything. Like we talked about favorite TV shows to um, favorite music. We talked about what we believe, Christianity, to how, how our families are like. We talked about why he bullies right, and how I used to be bullied, uh, to what, he, what, what type of man he wants to be when he's older. I mentored him, just like how my mentors mentored me. I instructed him on what it means to be a man, just like my first mentor did. I asked him questions, just like my second mentor did. I listened to him just like my third mentor did to me. But most of all, I loved him, just as Christ loved me. Over time, I started to see changes in him. And don't get me wrong, I I wish, I wish I could say that at the end of the school year, he was completely reformed and changed, that he was this great saint and angel that never said anything bad or picked on people. No, Uh, He was still frustrating. I still had to send him to the principal's office several times and talk to him. Uh, I'd hold him back during lunch and make him do lines. Um, The teacher movie montages make it look a lot easier than it actually is. But, you know, I I continued to love him. I continued to be patient with him because it wasn't based off of my own self-pleasures. Right? Because what did I have to gain? What did I have to gain from spending my lunches with a 13-year-old boy? Nothing, right? I wasn't paid for it. I, was, I could have been spending time with Katie, having lunch with her, right? But instead, I was spending it with a 13-year-old. It, it, it wasn't based off of any condition. 
right? It wasn't based off of his improvement level, his performance. Like, I, I, he had good weeks and bad weeks, and I never stopped meeting him just be, with him just because of that. I never thought of giving up on him. Why? It's because I understood God's love for me. I understood how patient God has been in all of my screw-ups, in all of my failures. And I was able to reflect that back to him. And I told him that. I told him, look, I love you because God loves us more. I pray. I pray that we as a church can reflect this kind of love can follow in Christ's example to love one another. Because the world, right, everyone else does not have this kind of example. They don't, have, they don't know this role model, the greatest act of love, the ultimate example of love, which is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. They don't know it. They haven't experienced it, but we have. We understand Romans 1 to 11. And how Christ, he gives us no excuses because he, he didn't have to die on a cross. He didn't have to leave the comforts of heaven. He didn't have to go through hell and punishment. He had all the excuses. He had so many excuses, right? Because you did this and because you did that. But no, despite us, he loved us. And in the same way, this is the example that we follow. In the same way, this is how we ought to love one another. I know it's hard, right? I'm not, I'm not delusional, right? It's a difficult thing. But again, God, he doesn't just give us the command. He doesn't just give us the example. He gives us the power to love. So let's pray for that. Let's pray that Christ would help us be a church that loves one another. Because it's on us, right? It's not just one person. Not just one person. A church, a gospel-centered church isn't just one person that loves someone with Christ's love. It takes a community. It takes a bunch, a room full of messy, imperfect people loving each other with Christ's love. That's the church that I hope to see. That's a church that I hope to leave and come back to whenever me and Katie visit from Colorado. I know we can do this. Not because you guys are awesome. Trust me, I've talked to lots of you guys. But it's because Christ is awesome. Let's pray. God, it's hard. I'll be the first one to confess that I struggle loving everyone in this room. Even the people that I get along with, it is hard. They're, they're sinful, I'm sinful, and we need you. You give us this command, you give us this calling for your glory to love others so that the world might see that and say, man, what is that? What is that love? What do they have? What have they seen? Who are they following? God, help us. Help us to love one another. We need you. If we don't have you, we're going to wreck it all. If we try to do this by our own power, by our own patience, we're going to wreck it all. But if we, if we remember your example, 
if we always come back to the gospel, I know, I know that your spirit will help us endure, will encourage us and fill us with hope to love beyond what we ever thought possible because you have loved us beyond what we ever thought possible. Thank you. Thank you for your love. In your sweet, sweet Jesus' name we pray. Amen.